0: Hello and welcome to New Books and World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Nikhil Paul Singh about his new book, Race and America's Long War, published by University of California Press in 2017. In this book, Dr. Singh explores links between race-making and war-making throughout U.S. history, arguing that each has provided continuous pretext for the other, from settler colonial wars to mass incarceration and the war on terror. In the era of liberal multiculturalism, he argues, these links aren't diminished, but simply take on new forms. Dr. Singh is Associate Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis and History at New York University. He's the author of Black is a Country, Race and the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy, and the Faculty Director of NYU's Prison Education Program. I really enjoyed the conversation with him and hope you do too. Hi, Nikhil. Thank you so much for joining New Books in World Affairs. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Anna.
0: Yeah, um... You know, to start the the way we usually begin these these interviews is just by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what led you to write about the topics in this book, and a little bit about why why this book right now.
1: Sure. So I, um, you know, I've been I've been working as a as a scholar and. Um, an academic for the last you know, 20 plus years and a lot of my work has been in uh, African American history, um, the history of black social movements, black radical intellectuals, uh, mostly set in the context of the 20th century history of the United States. Um, one of the, the aspects of my earlier work was to explore the ways in which uh, anti-imperialist and anti-racist politics have fused within black social movements particularly uh, going back to uh, mid-century the world world War two the Cold War the 1960s kind of height of the the black freedom movement so for a long time I've been interested in um, critical traditions uh, for examining the history of the United States and the world. And I saw a lot of the the best thinking about the United States and the world from a radical and critical perspective coming out of the Black Freedom Movement, Um, and particularly um, uh, an analysis that recognized some of the interrelationships between um, domestic, what we might call domestic, Racial oppression and exclusion, and international um, uh, processes uh, in which the United States was implicated in the the, the extension or continuation or, or or reformatting of of of, of the colonial project. Um, and I think, in, in many ways, that that really culminates in in the in the criticisms around the, the U.S. war in Vietnam. Um, so, so that was a lot of my earlier work, and 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 I, and I think it forms the intellectual framework for what I began to do in this book. So, my first book, uh, my first single-authored book, was um, it's called "Black Is a Country," uh, and and that's sort of where I I dealt with that 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 intellectual history I was just describing. Um, and this book, uh, "Race in America's Long War," really grew out of. Um the, the, the reflections I began to have with a lot of other people in the period after nine eleven, 11 particularly after uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, and the, the the dawning sense that many of us had that um, there was no end in sight to this war, that this war was was open-ended. It had been declared in a way um, and authorized in a way that um, that made it so. Um, and of course, it brought within its train many horrors, uh, many, many, many very difficult and challenging uh, moments. Um, one of the, the biggest, uh, initially, of course, being the the, the 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 embrace of torture in Abu Ghraib, the the embrace of uh, indefinite detention and torture in Guantanamo, um, and I think that that I began to. Uh, write about the wars. Um, I began to, to 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 think about how these wars were, in a sense, uh, reauthorizing or relegitimating um, a, a kind of um, a, a kind of project in which um, the, the, the 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 sort of constructed enemy or the construed enemy or the perceived enemy uh, was someone who was seen as. Um, uh, a person uh, upon which it was possible to enact a, a, an extreme kind of violence uh, without any kind of protection, um, and and I began to think about how that that was a recapitulation of, of of legacies of American warfare that really take us back in time into this sort of the the, the periods of colonial warfare and frontier warfare. Um, so that was that was sort of one one element and one thing that I was interested in tracking in the book. Um, but in 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 the context of what I just said a few minutes ago, uh, i was I was also trying to think about how it was that the current wars um, also were raising questions that we had already been grappling with around. Um, the legacies and, and and sort of ongoing realities of mass incarceration in the United States. Um, a, a really a massive social project that, that that begins to gain momentum in the United States in the 1980s, but really sort of it sort of takes off and accelerates in in the 1990s. So so just as the United States is 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 launching the the long war on terror, uh, we also are are finding ourselves at the uh, really, the, the high point of, of a regime of mass incarceration. So I I I was was interested in kind of thinking about how these two phenomena are actually interrelated. That a certain kind of um, a certain kind of uh, reduction in uh, civil and civic status inside the United States, particularly for people of color who are disproportionately incarcerated, but really for anyone who is who is who is a prisoner in a sense? Who is who is who is criminalized? Um, and and, and that that in my thinking, these these two phenomenon were were related. And so I began to want to think about how to how to explore them and to to braid an account that didn't separate out foreign policy and domestic policy, and that sort of drew forward what I what I just described earlier. This this sort of longer tradition of thinking about how Anti-imperialism, anti-racism are fused. How how the way the United States treats its citizens and its um, and those who are not citizens in the domestic space, um, particularly those who are, who are who are marked as other in various ways, um, also is carried over into U.S. foreign policy. So so and there's a sort of reciprocal relationship between the foreign and the domestic in the ways in which. Conceptions of security, conceptions of risk, conceptions of otherness—who—who um, uh, is—who is an object of state violence? Um, but these are these 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 are actually a kind of single field, and it's important
0: to think of them together. Excellent. So that that brings me to the next question, which is the book. The book draws on and contributes heavily to many different disciplines, I mean, just to name a few settler colonial studies, critical race theory, critical security and legal studies, gender studies. Um, Can you talk about some of the different intellectual genealogies, uh, thinkers that you pull together in these different chapters and how the frame of war facilitates putting them in dialogue with one another? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it is a
1: it, it is a book that's trying to um, think in a in a big way, but also in a sort of compressed way about a, a lot of really complicated processes. Obviously, um, I, I think that the two or three strands of thinking that were most influential um, as I. Um, as I was reflecting again on the on, on what's happening in the in the world and what's happening in terms of American uh, foreign policy um, and American policing practices, uh, that that I was drawn to the literature on the history of the carceral state and its formation, um, which is now a very broad and and interesting and, and comprehensive literature, uh, where. Where people have really tried to make sense of how this this, this experiment in mass incarceration, uh, which sort of ran ran has run so far in the United States, leading to the, the United States becoming the the largest, um, you know, producing the largest carceral complex that the world has ever seen, and the largest numbers of people in prison, um, over two million. Um, as I said, by, by the, the turn of the 21st century. Um, so that literature was very important to me. and I, I mean, I could certainly go into talking about specific specific works that have influenced me, but, but one of the, the really important ones um, was a work by the, um, the, the Marxist geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore uh, called Golden Gulag, which, is, which really tells the story of the, the, the rise of the prison complex in California in the 1990s. Um, and Gilmore has a really important um, uh, 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 argument where she's thinking about the prison in, in, in terms of political economy. So, what kinds of um, of political and economic processes um, is the the policy decision to to build prisons and to funnel populations that are in a sense now underemployed or surplus to the requirements of the economy into prison so where is that coming from um, and she also tries to connect that to an account of um, of, of sort of racialization or what we might call the re racialization of populations in the in the aftermath of the civil rights era in which uh, at least we get some kind of formal acknowledgement that 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 black people in particular are full citizens. Uh, but that mo- that moment in which full citizenship emerges is also the moment in which the, the crime is given an additional moral salience and becomes a, a mechanism for, um, for, in a sense, re stigmatizing people and for funneling people, especially people who are poor and people who are spatially isolated in cities, who, are, who, are, who have less access to services and to employment. Um, into a kind of a kind of a, a carceral and, and police um, organized um, uh, process, right? So, so, so that history of of the relationship between the rise of the prison, of of the targeted racially targeted processes of of incarceration, um, and um, and how they grow is sort of one kind of line of, of thinking that I'm. I'm following in the, in the, in the, in the, in the reading that, um, that sort of brought me to, to, to write this book. A second line of thinking would be, um, people who have written in, in really important and comprehensive ways about the history of counterinsurgency. Uh, and counterinsurgency is, as you, as you probably know, has a, has a long history. Um, it, 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 it in some ways goes back to, um, Sort of late 19th century colonial thinking about small wars against kind of racially benighted colonized peoples, um, and it it has a kind of a French lineage, it has a British lineage, it has a Dutch lineage. I mean, I mean, basically all colonial powers were fighting, um, you know, what what they called small wars or what they didn't even necessarily think of as wars—wars wars to civilize people—but essentially they were wars of pacification. They were wars designed to. Um, control populations where colonial powers were interested in extracting resources, or extracting labor, or creating various kinds of infrastructure and, and routes for the circulation of their own their own goods, manufactured goods, and so forth. So, um, there's a long history of, of colonialism and counterinsurgency that really goes back to the late 19th century, and it really tracks forward all the way through the 20th century, and, and during Vietnam. Um, The United States really takes up the mantle of counterinsurgency in in, in some new ways um, to fight the Vietnam War. Um, You know, again, it's it's, it's not talked about in the 1960s in expressly colonial terms because the United States makes the claim that it's not fighting a war uh, to colonize Vietnam, but to allow for a a a free nation that's not dominated by communism. Um, but, but the language of counterinsurgency and the way in which the thinking sort of develops is, is, is drawing heavily upon these earlier, these earlier traditions. And then, of course, during the, the, the Iraq War, uh, particularly as the United States begins to face the Sunni insurgency, a lot of these counterinsurgency ideas about how you pacify restive insurgent populations um, come back into vogue, and they, they, you know, David Petraeus. I think he wrote his his dissertation on Vietnam. Um, he, you know, they, they they sort of pull forward these these sort of older histories histories that are rooted in um, accounts of the French pacification of Algeria, of, of Britain in, in Malaysia, of the United States in Vietnam, and so forth. So, so there's this long arc of counterinsurgency thinking, and one of, the, you know, one of the, best, the best books on this is a book by Lala Khalili called um, Time in the Shadows, which really sort of sort of deals in a, in a very remarkable and comprehensive way with these these different these different lineages these different strands and sort of shows how they were they were interrelated. So so that's a kind of second line of thinking that, that was really really interesting to me. And then a third line of thinking would, would be the the sort of um, the, the, the 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 new work that has emerged really in the last decade on. Um, on kind of indigenous resurgence in North America. Uh, there's been a lot of incredible work on on North American settler colonialism in both the US and Canada, kind of extending to the Pacific Islands. And of course there's work also in, in Latin America that's very important, but I, I tend to be more focused in some ways on the on the North American literature for obvious reasons. Um, and, and and in some ways what this literature has done is is not only shown how questions of settler colonialism remain very contemporary. In other words, they're not really questions of the past. They're questions of the present. Um, there's, still, there's still an indigenous presence, and there's still uh, a project of, of settlement that is ongoing, and you can see it sort of flare up um in, in the most obvious way, in the conflict around Standing Rock, for example, recently. Um, but I also think that the, the the work on indigenous resurgence and settler colonialism in North America draws upon you know a longer intellectual uh, tradition of really thinking about how central the frontier was to organizing American conceptions of of belonging, of nationality. Of, 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 of the exceptionalism of American notions of, of, of kind of freedom and self-government. I mean, if you go back to something like Frederick Jackson Turner's um, essay on the closing of the frontier written in the late 19th century and, and the way uh, frontier expansionist conception of American history um, sort, of, sort of grows out of that and continues to be operative in the ways in which the U.S. thinks about itself in the world, um, and the, 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 the ways that frontier expansionist conception of history continues to, to, to work um, really is, 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 is an important part of how I think we need to understand what leads the United States into, into Vietnam, what leads the United States into Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the, these, these wars are, are, are often understood or framed as defensive or about security. Um, but in many ways, they're, they're also, uh, in in a sense, um, kind of part of the, the kind of American DNA that that if if you're not growing and expanding, if you're not um, if you're not demonstrating um, the sort of efficacy of, of of American kind of martial and military power in the world, that that, that in some sense. Um, you're, you're, you're going to be at risk of, 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 of either losing out or losing a place um, or, or, of, um, or of a future in which Americans are going to be, be dispossessed. You know, there's a, there's a sort of way in which the, the, the American internal kind of settler conception of freedom um, is one that we still haven't really um, undone. Um, and I think that there's, a, there's a, really, a really strong focus on that in, in a lot of critical work. Um, uh people like um, glenn colfard who's writing in um in, uh, in out of vancouver uh, an indigenous political theorist um, audra simpson in in, uh, in at columbia um and uh, aziz Rana, whose book um, the two faces of american freedom uh, on on kind of the concept of settler freedom um, was was also very influential to me so you know i could go on i think i'll probably better, better off stopping there. Um, but there, there, there are all these, all these lines of thinking that, that are, that are coming into the book. And as I say in the, in the preface to the book, I'm, I'm not expressly engaging in, in, with individual scholars and in their arguments because I'm really trying to build a, a kind of, a kind of, a kind of argument of my own and not get sort of bogged down in, in a, in a, in, a, in a sort of a more scholarly book, I mean, it's, it's meant to be a more public-facing kind of book. Um, but those, those are the sort of so those are some of the strands of thinking that are that are behind it.
0: Would you be able to expand a little bit? I, I'm not remembering the quote exactly, but as you were speaking, there was one quote I remembered something along the lines of uh, you know regarding sort of this founding idea of of America, that the concept of liberty had to be reconciled with uh, the development of a criminal enterprise. And I know I'm not getting the quote exactly right. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about these two ideas working together, this idea that liberty has to be paired with some some notion of criminalization for the American project to keep, to keep moving forward.
1: Yeah, I think I, I, I know what you're referring to. So I think... Um there there's a tendency to argue that race thinking um, and racialization emerges to reconcile the contradiction between notions of universal liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. all men are created equal, you know, the sort of... The, the kind of enlightenment uh, egalitarianism that informs the American Revolution and the French Revolution that racism develops as a kind of as a kind of as a kind of counter discourse to reconcile the discrepancies and contradictions um, that are coterminous with these these professions of universalism and inclusion right so, uh, we know that, along with the Declaration of Independence and and, and other sort of great charters of, of human freedom, um, there is there is there is the defense of Atlantic slavery. Uh, the slave trade may be out, outlawed uh, with with the, the origins of the United States, the transatlantic slave trade, but the but slavery continues, and the, and the internal slave trade begins to develop. Of course, you also have the. You have the acceleration of frontier expansion, um, with the with the declaration a kind of a kind of a taking off of the gloves of the, or the shackles. Now that settlers are American settlers are free to 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 lay claim to more of the territory, um, and and those projects, of course, involve um, uh, an enlargement of the realms of human unfreedom, um, both the shackling and um, and 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 direct coercion and seizure of black bodies, um, and also the 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 seizure of of, of lands that are already inhabited uh, by people who are recognized, um, and who then have to be in some ways unrecognized or or, or dematerialized even eliminated. Right. So so those those projects know are often framed as though they are they are contradictory projects right one, one, one would seem to seem to run directly against the grain of the other and racism is often thought the racism that is then applied or that, that then grows in the space of that contradiction is often thought to be a a kind of a discourse of justification right a, a way of sort of saying that. Well, we can do this to to black people, or we can do this to indigenous people because they are, in some sense, lesser beings. You know, and they they have some kinds of deficiencies. They have some kinds of, um, you know, they have some kinds of um, irredeemable characteristics that that don't require us then to treat them as equals, right? Um, and I think you know, there's something that's always been unsatisfying about that way of thinking about about how racism develops. Um, For one thing, I think it it tends to think of racism as a sort of a, a, as a primarily ideological construction as opposed to something that actually emerges um, very tangibly in an encounter. And I think it also sort of allows for people to think somehow that racism is a sort of uh, anachronism. You know, it was just the way people thought at the time, you know, they saw blacks and Indians as less than human, you know, and, and, and the thing is, is that it wasn't really the case that they saw people as less than human um, as, as a sort of separate body of thinking. They actually enacted and practiced something in which people were um, violated. Right, directly in their in their in their embodiment in their lands in their social relations, you know, by a kind of process that was articulated as an expansion of the realm of freedom, you know, and I think that's a much more complicated and difficult thing to get our minds around. It doesn't allow us a, 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 as, a, as 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 a kind of a compartmentalization. As if, uh, as if these are two separate things, you know, racism on the one hand and, and a kind of universal liberty on the other hand. It, it, it puts them into a much more a tight relationship. And one of the reasons I start to talk about criminalization in that context is because I think that it, it's something I see and, and others have seen really right there at the origins of, um, I mean, we think of the contemporary moment in which criminalization is, is so important and so braided with, with notions of, 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 of racial difference. But if you go back you know, to, to think about the, um, the, the early republic, uh, already there's an awareness uh, on the part of many American statesmen that what is happening on the frontier is actually a crime, that Indian lands are being stolen, that Indians are being murdered. Um, and they're trying to figure out what to do with that fact, right? And similarly, I think for those who are looking at the slave trade, uh, they're not—they're not sort of just people of their time who are easily rationalizing this. They also realize that they, that it that it is that it is criminal. That it is a kind of a criminal activity to to basically kidnap people, right? To kidnap people from their homes. Um, so the, the, the challenge really is how do you rationalize um, a criminal enterprise, a criminal enterprise that is actually really at the core of building a new state. You know, and there are two criminal enterprises. There's the criminal enterprise of, of land theft and there's the criminal enterprise of, um, of, of, of seizing black bodies. Um, and, the, and, the, and there're there arguably others perhaps as well but those two are very are very foundational and they're very formative um, and I think one of the things that I'm suggesting is that the the question of, of crime right then really becomes part of how um, how the process gets um, gets gets worked out that that the, one of the things that begins to happen is is that um, the, the the question of who is a criminal, and whose activity is criminal, um, sort of begins to subtly shift, right? So, so you know, Benjamin Franklin will say will will say things like, um, "It is in the nature of the slave to be a to be a thief," right? Um, and um, indigenous counterviolence really, really beginning quite early, is 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 going to be recategorized. Um, not as a, a struggle between two kind of kind of coeval parties with an equal claim to the land, or fighting it out, but as people who are who are kind of who are who are exercising an illegitimate or uncivil kind of violence, right? And that's part of to me the crucial piece of the dynamic through which. Kind of racial difference and racially differentiated understandings of who is a threat, who is a criminal, who is an object of violence, um, gets constructed, and whose violence um, gets to be enacted and understood as a kind of part of a civilizing project, and therefore, in some sense, not really violent. You know, I think that 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 there's a way in which we shroud. Our our own mechanisms of state violence, of legitimate violence, you know, behind these kinds of notions um, that suggest we are actually um, we're only violent because we are trying to uh, prevent a criminal counter violence, right? That is that is sort of that is sort of coming towards us. But that's a, that's a remarkable kind of sleight of hand, right? It's a and you see that sleight of hand uh, operative in in so many um, in so many moments throughout our history, um, where we can never really fully take the measure of the criminal nature of our own violence. Uh, of our, uh, and by our I mean uh, our our state, the state to which we are in some sense accountable, and that's accountable to us if we are if we are members of that state. Does that does that help um,
0: clarify the point? Yeah, absolutely, and it and it brings me to to one of what I what I think is one of the central ideas or propositions that you're making in the book about race making and war making being the, being these co co-constitutive processes. Um, one is constantly happening with the other, and I'd like to know if you can talk a little bit about that in historical context of wars that we think of as wars and wars that you describe that maybe the general population of the United States wouldn't necessarily hold in their historical memory as a war
1: uh, right i mean i mean i think I think now it's you know it, it may be common to 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 talk of the the Indian wars, you know certainly the language of war. You know, is is sort of ubiquitous in the way in which we think about American history. But um, in in many ways, I think what I'm what I'm arguing is is that from a from a fairly early point, uh, there's a recognition that first of all, there's there's tremendous asymmetry. Um, certainly by the by the middle to late nineteenth century, in the in the power of the, the sort of industrializing United States and the 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 native peoples who are who are still trying to preserve their 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 relationships, their social relationships and their relationships to the land but that are being being displaced by American by American expansion. So there's an asymmetry in in in, in power in technology and that's that's certainly um, certainly part of the story. Um, but but as as I just said in my previous answer, you know, insofar as indigenous counterviolence is 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 re-described as 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 criminal and thought to be within the purview of a of a of a domestic policy, right? Uh, the, the language that John Marshall of the uh, in the Supreme Court decisions, um, the famous decisions in the in the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties uses is, is that Indians are domestic dependent nations, right? So they're not they're not um, they're not. They're, they're. no longer people with whom you have to have a kind of a, a kind of concept of, of of again coevalness of separateness of, of people that you need to recognize. So so it's no longer quite war, right? It's it, and, and what I'm arguing is it's more like a police action, right? It's more like people who must be policed, people who, when they're violent, we understand to be criminal. Um, and it's that blurring of the lines between war and police that's that's very interesting to me because I think we see that throughout, um, you know, again the, this this sort of longer history. Um, and I think I think similarly, um, there's a way in which um, the, the 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 slave population, uh, particularly in the antebellum period, particularly in the South. Um, is, is viewed as, you know, a potentially insurrectionary uh, population, a population that could revolt. So in a sense, they're, 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 they're a foreign population, they're a foreign element, but they're also domestic, right? Because they're, they're, they're understood to be property, they're understood to be um, sort, of, sort of within the plantation context and the plantation household. So there's a sense in which they are also primarily the objects of police, but it's a particular kind of policing, right? It's a policing that is imagined as being exercised against a population that in some ways, well, in, in, in every way really has no rights um, that, 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 are, that that need to be respected or acknowledged and that are that are also kind of uniquely threatening, you know, because they're not seen as people that have any stake in the society, right? So there, there's, a, there, there's that sort of logic again of how a kind, kind of police... A police a kind of conception of policing that's informed by an understanding of a population that is its object that is that is foreign and that is that is uniquely threatening, right? So so that that sort of long shadow of sort of police action, um, which I see as really core to the way in which um, processes of racialization have worked, really does carry forward. Right. It carries forward into the U.S. wars and U.S. sort of period of U.S. overseas wars and colonial wars. The first major counterinsurgency the United States fights in the 20th century is in the Philippines. Um, And it has all this similar kind of racialized logic. I mean, essentially, the United States is going to the Philippines. Um, to, to kick out the Spanish and then to help the Filipinos become self governing I mean, that's the sort of ostensible language. And, of course, the United States stays there for 50 years, occupying, um, mm-hmm. occupying the island, you know, and, and in a sense, um, engage in a kind of a long history of, of counterinsurgency and pacification. And all of that's about building up uh, policing infrastructures and policing capacities, so of course it's 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 warfare, but it's it's warfare in which um, you don't need to recognize the population that you're fighting as as coeval as having the rights um, of of kind of of kind of combatants um, that um, that a war with another state would entail, right? So that long history of of sort of understanding. Um, Populations that don't have sovereignty, that don't have rights, um, that may be deemed in some ways as, um, as, in, as having various kinds of congenital incapacities, um, can now be subject to a certain kind of unlimited violence. And you, It may be called warfare, but the concept that's really crucial is the concept of, 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 of police power, which is seen as very elastic. Right, and in a sense, really, that is part of what we see carrying forward into the into the into the contemporary moment. I mean, the the Bush administration's really really great innovation was, or what what they imagined as an innovation, was to think that, you know, really you you you, you were you were fighting a non-state you're fighting a non-state enemy, um, which which obeys no recognized laws of war, and therefore you don't have to you don't have to. Um, follow these long-established precedents of how you wage war, according to, say, the Geneva Conventions, um, and you can treat what what come to be called enemy combatants um, as people without any kind of substantive rights or protections or due process or anything like that. You know, and that's that's out of the legacy of colonial and frontier and slave policing. You know, and that's that's part of. Sort of the long thread that I'm trying to pull through, you know, in a, in a somewhat, somewhat economical and perhaps at times telegraphed way, um, through some of these uh, chapters in the book.
0: Could you talk a little bit about uh, the war, the wars on drugs, and and the war on terror, um, so called or not so called? Yeah. Plus, yeah, and but, I, I mean, I think that's a and that's I, a good follow up. I, I do um, want to ask it in the context of of this idea that you also put forward between inner and outer wars, um, and the blurring of lines between states and sort of amor- amorphous general others. How do how do these two ideas of war factor into what you're putting forward?
1: Yeah, so I've used this, I use this. I developed this kind of this kind of idea or this figure of the inner war and the outer war, and that's a way of, of sort of. For for me, of kind of again trying to think about this 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 single frame in which um, American state violence and thinking about security and thinking about um, uh, 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 populations, you know, and 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 processes in the world that represent threat are are simultaneously internal and external, and uh, that they tend to get they tend to get articulated together or mapped onto one another, uh, partly because of the the ways in which these these longer histories of having had internal populations that are imagined as enemy populations or populations in need of pacification or elimination really shape American American political culture in the first century of the, the nation's development. So, um, so that inner and outer war is a kind of a kind of a kind of uh, a kind of I don't know if I would call it an analytical claim. It's it's more like a heuristic that I'm using in the book, and, and it's an effort to, again, sort of disrupt the notion that that foreign policy and domestic policy, particularly in matters of security or the, the exercise of state violence, is, is, is truly separable in the way we think about it. I mean, there's a whole way of thinking about American foreign policy that emerges out of the the, the kind of origins of the national security state in the middle of the 20th century that really reifies foreign policy. It thinks about it as, as a sort of a do, domain that's very separate, separate, and and subject to kind of special kinds of expertise. And it's a kind of it's kind of a space of elite statecraft that's sort of insulated from from sort of popular popular pressure, popular accountability, but also kind of. Kind of internal processes in which uh, uh, Americans are continuing to grapple with these 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 histories of racial division, of racial violence, um, of, 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 of of these histories of, of, of settlement and um, and, of, um, uh, and of and of and of the ways in which those have conditioned sort of regional. Um, regional histories, regional, racial languages, regional divisions between populations, and so forth, and, and that, that, that also of course includes the border and the borderlands and sort of the question question of of how migrants fit into this and, and so forth so so all of that all of that internal stuff is is not actually set apart from. The history of U.S. foreign relations after World War II, even though these are imagined as entirely separate domains, so I'm really trying again to to kind of push against that throughout wherever I can, wherever I can talk about it. Whether it's sort of the way in which the border patrol uh, emerges and the border becomes militarized during during World War II, um, in ways that actually involve like the explicit transfer of military, you know, hardware you know, to the border, you know, or the ways in which, um, Japanese internment, you know, which, you know, maybe we, we tend to kind of think about as a, as a, as a, as a a, a separate or, or exceptional moment within World War II is in fact not, is in fact far more indicative again of the way in which, um, war overseas induces, um, a kind of question and a set of practices directed and targeted towards an enemy population. And of course, the long history in which African American populations and people, particularly after uh, World particularly beginning in World War One, but, but even really going back to the Civil War, um, try to use war um, and war fighting and, and, and especially overseas war fighting to make the claims that they are now entitled to full citizenship. So, 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 war always entails some kind of, um, some kind of re-navigation or recalibration, or as I said, reformatting of of, of these kind of internal processes. So, so to to, to bring it forward, this is sort of the beginning of your question to 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 the war on drugs, or really the war on crime, which precedes the war on drugs. Um, you know when we look at the history of the war on crime which is a, which is the phrase that really develops in the 1960s to 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 make sense of kind of rising crime rates or what are what are what are argued are rising crime crime rates in the 1960s kind of street crime uh, but but then also um, going forward um, crimes related to uh, the drug trade And 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 illegal drug use, or the illegalization of certain kinds of drug use, um, that that the framing of that of of those of those those sort of phenomenon in terms of war, right, um, and become very much a part of a response to the, the 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 urban crisis. Of the late civil rights era, you know, in which, in which, African American populations who have been that have been, you know, sharply segregated in in urban spaces over you know over a generation, are beginning to make um, demands, right? Demands that really grow out of the whole the, the sort of longer civil rights imperative, um, and those demands, of course, are um, are creating. They're creating ruptures of a, of a kind of spontaneous kind, uh, the, 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 the legacy of of, of, of course, of riots throughout the 1960s, the most important of which is the Watts riot, um, uh, that, 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 that this, this sort of urban restiveness among black populations is going to be completely criminalized in the 1960s. Um, and and then the the language in which it's criminalized is going to then get transferred onto um, the language of war again. So now we're fighting a war on crime. So in my earlier answer, I was sort of telling a story of how how war informs a kind of a concept, an elastic concept of policing aimed at enemy populations. But in this part of the story, kind of going forward, um, American war-making... Right, which is understood after World War II as sort of part of the, the kind of keeping of the peace globally, that American military might and power is understood to be sort of crucial to the defense of the free world, is that is, is actually being kind of now turned inwards, um, again, onto domestic populations. And so the war on crime that really begins in the late 1960s um, is... Is the, is the sort of starting point, really, of the arc of mass incarceration. And this has been argued very strongly um, in a book by uh, Elizabeth Hinton, which, which is uh, entitled From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, uh, and it, where she really shows the sort of, the sort of the, the, this, this punitive turn, this policing turn. Um, and and, and, and she, she, she makes this great point that, that, I, that I pick up on in the book, um, where she quotes Lyndon Johnson saying, you know, the war on crime is a war within our borders, right? So once you start thinking about, thinking about po- populations inside the country as being the object of war, you've really shifted the ethical and moral and policy compass in a way that makes it very, very difficult to come back from, um. You know, and, and I think we've lived, we've lived the consequences of that. I mean, we've lived now with, with, with 30 years of a punitive turn, which have led to, you know, 2 million people, and 2 plus million people incarcerated, 8 to 10 million more people with um, various kinds of, you know, you know, in the system, you know, with various kinds of um, criminal stigma attached to them, uh, so i think it's 70 70 million americans have have a criminal record i mean that's it's astounding when you really start to sort of extrapolate out from the impact of of a of this war on crime and of this war footing that is imagined to be at the center of of the policing project in the united states after the 1960s um and you know so i think I think these are these are these are almost uh, these are problems that are kind of hidden in plain sight. They become very normalized. Uh, but I think what I'm trying to say by by really showing how the the policing conversation and the the war conversation, how the inner war and the outer war, how the long shadows of kind of race war that run through them, um, you know, kind of buoy them. Um, that there's nothing about any of that that we should we should think of as normal. There's nothing about any of that that we should um, that we should not want to really confront in a, in a in a in a very direct way, and, and to sort of recognize. I think if, if I have an ultimate goal, you know, to to recognize how how this has really um, this has really be begun to to sort of erode, you know, in a really profound way. What we would think of as that as 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 the, as the as the necessary basis of any civic order, Um, a a civic order being understood as an order in which um, uh, we live through um, relations of of, of trust and capacity to to govern ourselves without this level of insecurity and violence.
0: Brings me, brings me, yep. Yeah, no, thank you. It's a it it did take a while uh, reading through the different parts of this book, seeing how you, you form it into a, a coherent whole, um, which, which is not linear by, by any measure, but, but what it does do is it responds in some way or puts in dialogue. Uh, this, this moment that we're in that, that many people, you know, this political moment that we're in, in the United States, that many people are describing as exceptional, mobilizing around and having a lot more critical conversations around. And, In the closing parts of the book, uh, you know, you you, you put forward some analysis and some thoughts on this moment, how we got here, what is, but even more what isn't so exceptional about it. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk about that sort of in closing, but also, I want to ask if and where you're seeing, uh, given given sort of your own background, where are you seeing transformational politics taking place right now? And I also want to ask you, what does opposition to perpetual war, as you've described it, look like? What does uh, what do alternatives look like?
1: Yes, these are really these are these are those are great questions. I mean, especially the last question, which I which I must say, the book doesn't. Really take up, but I hope to be able to take up more fully in talking about the book. So I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, uh, the first, the first part of your question, really, you know, is about the the kind of the, the, the what I call the present crisis in in, in in one of the last chapters, and I think that was it was in some ways responding to to Trump's election and some of the some of the fears around it, some of the ways it was. Frame, frame some of the ways in which he framed his own claims um, that really um, kind of spurred me to pull this book together. I mean, as, as you say, it has a kind of it has a somewhat kaleidoscopic quality. It's not it's not exactly a linear argument. They're they they're braided essays that 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 connect with each other and that I think hopefully thematically, when taken together, show the sort of picture that I'm trying to sketch in, in these in these comments but 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 I think you know yes I, I wanted to really argue that Trump's not exceptional um that um we 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 aren't in a kind of um a kind of a kind of a unique moment of um of of you know what some people have called kind of norm erosion I mean it 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 seemed absurd to me to think that that Trump represented greater norm erosion than say uh, the Abu Ghraib torture or, or or even the launching of the Iraq war, um, which was you know a, a war that was launched on the basis of, of very specious kinds of evidence and did, certainly did not manage to convince uh, international public opinion, which is at least something that used to matter, uh, let alone the United Nations Security Council, which is already a a body that is uh, in some ways beholden to to very dominant uh, powers in the world so so, uh, you know, there, there's been a long, a long erosion of, um, of, of, of American commitments to thinking really seriously about what is required to build a stable, consensual world order. And of course, I think those commitments have always been somewhat shaky, um, and they've always been uh, sort of undermined by some of the, the the things that I write about in the book, you know, including the sort of the sort of internal st- instabilities in the country that derive from these 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 divisions around race, uh, especially, um, and also the kind of um, the kind of expansionist impulse, uh, which has led the United States into some ill-begotten wars, uh, most of all on Vietnam. Uh, so so I'm not trying to. Uh, I, I don't have a kind of sense that there was there was once a golden age, um, but I do think that in the immediate post-war period and coming out of World War II, which was obviously such a cataclysm in world history, unparalleled cataclysm in world history, uh, that there was a level of seriousness in American thinking about how to operate in the world, a kind of a, a kind of a longer term. Um, uh, uh, a commitment to what some have called ethical realism, um, sometimes even a pulling back uh, from from the brink of disaster. uh, And um, again, I want to be careful in how I talk about this, and in some ways this is part of the book that I'm writing now, which is really a book about the Cold War and the origins of American globalism. Um, so, So it's on my mind. But I do think that over the last, you know, really thirty years or so, there's been a real degeneration and, 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 and decomposition in serious American thinking about about world world, you know, kind of world comedy, comedy at a global scale, what the what the role of the United States should be. And I think in the post-Cold War period, there really is a a, a resurgence of a of a kind of unilateralism and hubris, and a belief that military power alone was kind of enough to to sort of to sort of justify um, leadership, um, action, um, a a kind of um, a kind of um, um, a kind of disregard uh, for. for, for for consensus um, and a, a, a kind of um, a kind of impunity, you know, and so I so I really think that, that uh, that's something that um, we're we're now we're now sort of faced with faced with a sort of uh, you know a kind of further further degeneration in the figure of the figure of Trump the Trump administration, which which seems to have absolutely no clue. You know about what it's what it's doing in the world. So there's there's been a corruption, really, of, of the globalist ideal. You know, and I know the globalist reality was you know left a lot to be desired. But I think the globalist ideal, which which certainly was an ideal of a, of a world shared in common. You know, in a world in which people actually have to work out um, work out relationships within um, within terms that. Really present some some limits to action, um, and obviously the ecological questions loom very large here. You know, I feel like we're not confronting those, and, and it's, it's, it's 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 extremely dangerous in that sense. And I think obviously also the Trump the Trump logic really really built very 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 heavily on the inner war, what I call the inner war. You know, on the the war on migrants, the the war at the border. Uh, the war on crime and the ways in which Trump talks about um, uh, kind of urban black populations, um, obviously the the war on terror, but internalized in relationship to the threat of of terror within or infiltration from the outside by by Muslims, and the, the, of course the successive efforts to engineer this Muslim ban. Um, these these are all part of a kind of a kind of a, a right wing discourse. You know, really going back to to the 1980s and 1990s, and have been really important to uh, creating a certain kind of um, a kind of constituency for politics on the basis of racial fear, and I think the Democratic Party has sometimes gone along and, and, and sort of not been very good at, at either inoculating people against that or really more frontally confronting that. I don't think the first Clinton administration was very good on that, um, and I write about that. Um, uh and I think that you know in some ways you know in some ways Obama was a was a break, you know, and I think Obama did represent something more more hopeful, but um but there's there's a way in which that 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 ends up being a, I think another another sort of missed opportunity um, to really to really reorient the country to redirect the country towards a more a kind of a more a more socially constructed sense of what what kinds of policies do we need to actually produce you know to use a like old utilitarian language the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, to really think of the nation in sort of more, more holistic terms, across divisions, across differences, across inequalities. Um, instead, we we really are in 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 an age in which people push are pushing polarization. You know, they're pushing all different kinds of polarization, economic polarization, but also racial polarization. And of course, as, as I as I argue in the book, those are those are very very interrelated. So so I'm I'm trying to sort of. You know, I'm being a little abstract in this answer but you know people who are interested hopefully can, can read the book and read the essay uh, that, that really deals with Trump more centrally because um, I think it it stands up I mean it, it was written right after the election but uh, and in many ways Trump has not been very successful or, or efficacious as a president which I'm which I'm happy for uh, but you know we're still in the early days you know and I think that the dangers are, are very are very uh, very much on the front burner in terms of terms of what could happen. And, and, um, and so, so I, you know, I think we're, we're, we, 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 have to see, um, I do think to sort of turn to the second part of your question on, on resistance and transformative tools and, um, i more kind of hopeful signs. You know, I do think we are in a, we are in a political awakening in this country. I think, um, I think it's been a long time coming. I mean, I do think even Obama's election was part of it. The Sanders campaign has contributed immensely. Um, the, the, the so-called resistance to Trump. I mean, I think um, I think the various sort of social movements of the last the last uh, seven to ten years, from from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter to the now the Me Too campaigns um, around um, around sexual violence. I think there's a there's 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 a lot of activation, you know, around um, around the recognition of the ways in which we live in a uh, a kind of a a kind of civically punitive and violent society that is um, that sort of is is disproportionately operative along lines of race and gender and sexuality. Um, uh, and of course um, economic deprivation and I won't necessarily use the language of class here but but a, but a, a, a deepening economic polarization um, it, it, is, is, it sh- shoots through and runs through all of those other questions all the questions of race, gender and sexuality. we don't yet have a left that is that, that really has a has a language and a kind of and a kind of larger, you know, at a kind of a larger scale um, that can sort of meaningfully contest for power in these terms, but there are a lot of green shoots, and there are a lot of places in which people are, are working really effectively at local and municipal scales. I think sometimes now winning state elections... Uh, maybe under the banner of the Democratic Party, but but with a with actually a far more a far deeper um, sort of sort of radical and egalitarian vision than than we've seen in a long time. Um, you know, I think the 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 promise of politics in America has, has always been there. You know, I think that that really that is that is part of the discourse as well. The idea that this is a this is a a, a democracy in which. Uh, which flows from popular self-government. Um, popular self-government gets distorted into populism and gets distorted into various kinds of exclusionary visions of the polity perpetually. Um, but the idea of a kind of radical vision of self-government is is one that I think we should be thinking about how to operationalize and actualize wherever we are, including in the institutions that we 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 work in, like universities. Um, you know, or corporations, which are which are in many ways radically anti-democratic institutions. You know, in which people are thought of as being, you know, mere employees who, who sort of sort of live by the grace of those who run those institutions, rather than participants in, um, you know, in a meaningful process of of creating um, community, in a sense. You know, so so again, going back. To to the past, not something I write about in this book, but something I've written about in my earlier work. Um, the, the, the the sort of the vision of the beloved community, um, the visions of this of the of the of the radical civil rights movement that really were about um, a kind of a reinvigoration of of popular demo- of a kind of inclusive popular democracy that was um, that was uh, that was um, that was. Fundamentally aimed at reforming what what King called these interrelated evils of um, racism, militarism, and materialism. I mean that that is that those are ideas that run through the grain of the history of the United States and the kinds of oppositional movements and social movements that we've had. Um, and those are still very very palpably and powerfully a part of the world that we we're in. And, and they're the promise, really. Um, that we have to draw upon, and, and, and I'd, I'd only add to that that uh, we really need now need to have those envisions infused with a much stronger sense of um, of, of of the problems that are imperiling our, our, our shared ecology, the challenges that are imperiling our shared ecology, um, and that are really going to, I think, require us to rethink um, a, a, a kind of a kind of idea that. Um, that very few people are are, are willing to, to rethink, which is the idea that, that that our economy needs to be run on a notion of kind of perpetual growth. Perpetual growth is a little bit like perpetual war, you know. It's a kind of it's a kind of faith, you know, that if we don't grow, we're somehow going to die. You know, we're somehow going to fall back into to some kind of much darker sort of more sort of sort of uh, uh, you know every-person-for-himself kind of, kind of world. But, but in a way, that is the world that is now being produced by this commitment to perpetual growth because, because we, we aren't thinking carefully about what it means to steward the resources that sustain life on the planet uh, and not just for human beings. Um, so, so I really do think we're at a, we're at a, a profound moment in, in our history and 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 it's a it's a bit of an impasse, and it's a bit hard to see how it's going to go. I mean Trump is by no means the last word on this you know and and what comes after trump could be could be much scarier than trump, you know, or really this could be a moment where where we start to really really turn things around and 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 sort of sort of chart a new course
0: and uh just in closing, what a uh... Thank you for that. I mean, it's there, there's there's truly a lot to think about. And, and the internet and sort of the digital age was something that I, I was going to ask you a little bit more about um, gatekeepers and whatnot and how, how these narratives are shifting. Um, I'll leave it to maybe a future conversation and, and encourage people to, to pick up the book. Um, but in the meantime, just as a closing question, maybe you could tell us what, what you're working on now.
1: Sure. Well, I, you know, I have a couple of, I have a few different projects. I am, um, I'm, I'm the faculty director of a prison education project. So uh, we're, we're building a program here at New York University um, to provide um, college education to uh, people in prison, people coming out of prison. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, um, it's been a, about a five year project and it's kind of, it's kind of reaching a very, uh, you know, a very constructive point. We've had five students um Gain an associate's degree from NYU inside prison, and, and we have students coming out of prison who are uh, continuing on to do their BAs, and and so I, it's a big part of the work I've been doing. It's a kind of institution building work, um, it's a kind of movement work or network social network building work um, in New York City that really is about trying to redress and challenge the. Um, the baleful legacies of mass incarceration in our city and state, and people can learn more about that by just uh, looking up prison education. Uh, uh, dot uh, I think it's just prison education at NYU. If you Google that, you'll find our, our website, which tells a lot about the project. Um, I'm I'm finishing a new book um, uh, that should be c- coming out hopefully in a year, um, uh, called um, uh, Exceptional Empire. Um, Race, colonialism, and the origins of American globalism, which is which really is a more of a historical, uh, historically researched monograph, looking at the the early the, the, looking from the, the period from World War II through the the, the, the the Vietnam War, so the 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 kind of kind of early Cold War as the sort of center of the book, and I'm really trying to trying to tease out the arguments about how the United States is really going to confront. Colonialism and, and the ways in which ideas about about racial hierarchy and colonial hierarchy are continuing to, sh- to sort of shape and direct American thinking about the world, even though that thinking is is sort of being recast in a more globalist uh, and, and again kind of universalist uh, idiom. So so that book is is um, is, is in process, and then um, and then I have a, a, another piece um, coming out next month in N plus One on um, on some research that I've been doing with, um, with Professor Tweland too, my, my collaborator, um, which is, uh, on, uh, it's, it's right now that the piece is focused on Alabama in the the present day and and on efforts to bring back manufacturing in Alabama. And it's really about some of the the race class conflicts in Alabama right now. Um, and Alabama is a really interesting place to look closely. Obviously we have this upcoming special Senate election, which is, you know, on everybody's minds, and we have an attorney general from Alabama who, who really, whose own lineage really takes him through back to the, the white to to sort of sort of sort of the high era of post-war white supremacy, um, and so I'm 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 uh, I'm working on a project that's really about uh, race, labor, and and the American South uh, that that I think will be something that. Um, that, that, that probably is, is gonna, gonna be, you know, something I'm working on for the next two or three years and it's a, a collaborative project, but the first piece of that is coming out, um, probably next month. So those are some of the things I'm, some of the things I'm doing right now.
0: Great. A lot to look forward to. Um... I just want to thank you so much for joining again. I know this, this all happened sort of quickly. I think I had actually reached out to you originally about the, the book that's going to be coming out, Exceptional Empire. Um, and you said, actually, I just wrote this other book. So I'm, I'm glad that it worked out. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on.
1: Well, thank you so much for, for your interest and in taking the time to, to uh, ask me such great questions. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about the book. Só no
0: um ano no dia, já posso sentir na pela mais e é deixar sua assinatura de só na cara como uma pintura.